Oh man, it's late. If I was tired earlier, I'm really tired now, but this is just how it's been. Uh, you know, I was thinking about the therapy industry, and one of the reasons why I think and talk about that so much, in addition to the fact that it's just ever-present, and there's this pop psychology, pop therapy everywhere now, it's in people's conversations, at least the people I know. Some of it might be regional, but I see it everywhere. I think it's much more than just this area, because it's something I experience personally in my daily in my daily interactions with people, and it's something that I also see everywhere online when I look. You see it in the media, even. But one of the reasons, too, why I am as focused on that as I am is just through firsthand knowledge of how that industry works. Because I worked in it for a little over six years. I worked for a business that it wasn't a mental health practice, but it was a basically it was a, like a marketing service for mental health therapists. And we set clients up with therapists, help them get therapists, and then we provided resources to therapists. But our actual money came from therapists who paid us for marketing. You know, we listed them, we had a directory, we gave them all kinds of resources. I was very involved. I mean, I was part of the programming team, but I was also part of the continuing education team. And I was in charge of these mental health seminars. Like I was in charge of the tech side of that, where therapists could get their continuing education credits. We would have some very well-known figures in the mental health field. You know, some names that, not ultra famous people, but people were like, I'll come across their names just out in the world and people know who they are. I didn't know them at the time. I was like, oh, this is just another author. This is another professor. This is another somebody of note. But at the time, I had no idea who they were, but I'll come across their names sometimes. And I'm like, oh, wow, I spoke to that person. I was that person's tech support, basically helping them get onto a glorified Zoom call many years ago. But I really saw that industry from the inside, like not the practice side of it, although I did learn a bit about that, but the industry side. And what's so interesting about it is our demographic was overwhelmingly feminine and our approach was very soft. There was kind of an attempt to soften everything, like including the language, especially the language. And, you know, I used the word client a second ago to refer to the people who are trying to get mental health help, who are trying to find a therapist. And we, the CEO, he was a former therapist, and he refused to use the word client anywhere on the site. Even though that's the common term, he used the term people seeking therapy. And all of the language kind of followed suit from there. Like he was very adamant about getting away from the clinical side of things and making it just a lot softer. And I think that was effective, you know, I think that it was a, an alternative to some of the, to, to some of the other similar companies It was a, a successful company. It was a startup and I worked from the, I worked for them fairly early on in their, after they were created and everything. So I got to see it kind of evolve and it was a, a successful company, 
I mean, I think it could have been more successful during that time if it had stayed a little more focused on its bottom line. But, uh, you know, it was a successful company. But it was interesting to see because, yeah, our entire demographic, everything was marketed to women and the tone of everything we did. Because in addition to providing practical resources, we also published articles and had all kinds of material. There was really a lot going on with it at any given time. A lot of different... It was a small company in terms of employees, but there were a lot of different departments. We were just engaged with a lot of different things. And, you know, I'm trying to remember the age range. I mean, you could probably guess and you'd be right. I don't remember the age range, but we knew what the demographic was. Like we had the analytics, we had data to know who our audience was. And so it wasn't even that we specifically engineered it. Like we're going to make this for women. We're going to market this to women. It was that that's who was coming to the site. That's who was using our services. And, you know, it was, it was kind of new agey friendly, like not in a metaphysical, spiritual sense necessarily, but it definitely, I mean, therapy attracts that. Mental health professionals, it's not uncommon for them to be kind of new agey in their own way regardless of their actual spiritual beliefs. It's like, it, you know, I mean, for obvious reasons, those things kind of line up with each other. But it was just interesting to see that, you know, and, you know, I'm somebody, though, where, like, I, my attraction to that kind of stuff is way more direct and austere. Like, that softness really didn't appeal to me at all, and it's a blessing that I wasn't involved. Like, I'd initially been in the marketing department, but... It's a blessing that I didn't stay in the marketing department. I was only in the marketing department for a couple months. It's, it was much better that I was working on the back end. I was a project manager for most of my time there. Because the front end, the public side of it, it required just a certain softness that, you know, I just it just wouldn't have been fun for me. It just wouldn't have been... It's just not my style at all. And I think about that too, because it's like, you know, knowing so many people who are attracted to that, it's mostly women. Just like the demographic of our audience was largely feminine and the tone of the website was largely feminine. It seems to be women who are more drawn to therapy too. And there are jokes about that. There are all kinds of jokes that I'll see online and here in different places about women trying to urge men to get therapy and the man being like, well, you know, I, I work out and I, you know, I, I read philosophy and I do this and I hang out with my friends and we do this, you know, like very life affirming things. And it's funny cause that's a very real, I don't know if that's a meme. I don't know what you'd call that. I'm sure it's a meme as well as just a joke that you see around, but that's been my experience too. You know, is that women will encourage you to get therapy. Like, multiple girlfriends of mine have told me, like, you should really think about, like, talking to somebody. Unsolicited, too. And, you know, in the past, like, I, I was not in as good of a place. I was much more negative. You know, I had substance issues, things like that. 
you know, it, it would make sense maybe in that context, like, you know, if I'm negative all the time and I'm drinking too much, smoking weed all day, every day, I understand why you would think maybe that person has some stuff they need to resolve. But I, I just, I've always rejected the idea of talking to somebody. I'm not reject, I don't reject the entire industry because I, having worked in that business, I, I know that it's done people good. And one of my absolute best friends for my entire life, he's currently a, a therapist and he's good at it. Like, it's not like I've been there. It's not like I've been in the sessions, but I know that he would be good at it, knowing his personality, knowing the way he operates. You know, he was kind of in that de facto role for people we knew our entire lives. So I know that he would be good at it in a clinical setting. But what's interesting, though, is this move away from the clinical tone. You know, just like the CEO of my company made it a very firm point to move away from the clinical tone that people associate with psychiatry, for example. Because psychiatry is different than psychotherapy. And, uh, you know, he was also opposed to big pharma and the role that that's played in that industry, which if I remember right, only psychiatrists can prescribe medication. I don't know if that's a hundred percent right, but I vaguely recall something about that because a psychiatrist is a doctor, whereas a psychotherapist isn't. So I believe you have to be a, I mean, I'm sure a psychotherapist can, can arrange it, but there's something to where I think you have to be a psychiatrist to write prescriptions for people and psychiatrists, they tend to be more traditional. They tend to be more clinical. I don't know if this is true, but you know, my impression was that psychiatrists are often men gravitate to that a little bit more. I don't know how the numbers actually shake out, but I know that we had psychiatrists who worked with us. And I do remember noticing that a lot of men were psychiatrists. But, uh, you know, it's not that men should never seek therapy. And I mean, I think, you know, certain people need professional guidance. It's not like I think it's all a crock of shit or anything. But the lines, you know, the popularity of it and the lines getting kind of blurred between pop culture and therapy, I don't see, I, I personally don't think that's such a good thing. Because many of the people I know who are into that kind of thing, they just seem to have problems forever. Like it may have given them certain tools, but they seem to, to continue to be hung up on the same things forever. And maybe they've improved. And maybe it's more attractive to certain type of, types of people. But uh, it's, it's not for me. But, you know, I've had people like try to tell me like, maybe you should go. Like, I have a friend who, you know, she, I know she means well, but she's tried to tell me a couple times, like, oh, you know, you know, your mom died. You should really go talk to somebody sometime. And I'm like, you know, that's of no concern to me, you know. I know it sounds heavy, but it's like I have no, there's nothing mixed up. It's not even that much grief. There's not even, there's not really anything to process. You know, I... The, the biggest problems with that are all practical in nature, like legal, financial, 
those have been the biggest hurdles dealing with somebody's death, somebody's unexpected death. It really hasn't been the emotional or spiritual side. Not that they would help you with the spiritual side, but that's really been of, of no consequence to me. But people mean well when they say that. They're not saying, like, you seem like you're having a problem. Like, in this case, I know this friend isn't saying it because I seem upset about anything or bothered by it. It's just some people operate in a space where, like, that's just what you're expected to do. But a lot of the people I know who encourage that, they also have a vested interest. Like my friend who's a psychotherapist, like he thinks people should go to therapy, but he's also a therapist. So of course he wants that. And I don't mean to say that he's, I don't mean to say that there's anything um, manipulative about that. It's just that he obviously completely believes in it and that's valid. But I personally just have a more mixed take on it, where I think I'm glad it exists. I'm glad people can go. I think some people are in a situation where they need to go, where they need a, a neutral outside party to give them help and guidance. But I know for me, it's like, I, like whenever I, I think about this, I'm like, isn't that just called having friends you trust? And friends that you can, because I mean, I, when I talk to my friends, very little of it's like talking about your feelings. Like when I think about my male friends, very little of it's like talking about your feelings. But you vent sometimes and you don't necessarily ask for advice, but sometimes they'll just say something. Like there was a few years ago where I was talking to Miles and I was just like, man, like, you know, it's a, you know, a very, uh, kind of narcissistic moment, but I was like, man, like, I can't believe I've gotten this far and I still feel like I have no credibility with anybody. And he just said like, well, your, your path is just longer than most. And that was just the perfect thing to hear at that moment. Just your path is longer than most. And I was like, well, holy shit, that's good. <laughs> it was like, you know, I don't need, I don't, I didn't need to say anything else. That was exactly, you know, because it was just one of those moments where it's like, this happens to me a lot, actually, where it's like, most of the things that I do for myself are just for myself. And here's a therapy session for you. Most of the things that I do, I, they're for myself. But uh, most of the things I do, I do them because I genuinely want to do them. I feel compelled or I feel the will to do them. But every once in a while, I will kind of double down on something and be like, maybe I'll get a certain result. Maybe this will be my quote-unquote million-dollar idea. You know, maybe there will be some kind of breakthrough with this project or idea that I have. And I find when it doesn't play out that way, not that it's a failure or anything, but just when it doesn't break through, I'm like, man, what do I have to do? What's a guy got to do? to? It's like some Rodney Dangerfield moment where it's just like, you know, can't get no respect, whatever he says, whatever Rodney Dangerfield says, I can't, I can't get, I can't get no respect, you know, whatever he says. It's that sort of feeling though, where it's like, you're like, man, what do I got to do? What's a guy got to do to get, to get a little respect around here? Meanwhile, I feel respected almost all the time. So what am I talking about? That's why you can't get caught up in that. Cause when I actually think about that, I'm like, I feel pretty respected, but, uh, it's just expecting some kind of result. And that's usually, those are usually the things that frustrate me. 
So that's basically what I was saying. It's like, you know, what's a guy got to do to get a little credibility around here? And just here and like, oh, your, your path is just longer than most. I was like, ding, ding, ding. You know, that's a, you know, that's a great way to think of it. There's more to do. Not don't invest in this one situation where you expect a certain outcome. You've got to keep going for longer. And I mean, that's probably true for everybody in their own way. But, you know, sometimes you have to hear that. So, you know, you have little things like a friend can just say one little thing like that and it blows your mind. You're like, exactly. But the thing is, like a, a stranger couldn't have told me that. Like, even if they said that, even if a stranger said that to me, they don't know me. Even if it was a therapist that I was going to every week for years, they still don't know me in my personal life and what I'm all about and what I do. So it's like, even if they expressed the same thing or a similar sentiment, it really wouldn't have had as much value. And, uh, you know, so I, I see friendship that way where it's like very rarely do I, do I talk about feelings or even just anything like that with friends. But when you do get into an idea that's on your mind, when you have some sort of rumination, I think would be a better way to put it when you're ruminating on something, and I mean, and two, it's like your friends can give you practical advice that you might not be thinking of. They can kind of help you see the other side of a situation if you have blinders on. And the reason why I'm hammering home on that is because there's been an idea that's become very popular in recent years of like not placing emotional burdens on the people in your life. Um, there's a There's a specific term I'm trying to think of. I think it's, it's emotional, uh, emotional, uh, it's like basically oh, emotional labor. <laughs> it's like, don't place, it, it comes from women. I've only ever heard this come from women. Women will say like, oh, men are, men are always placing their emotional labor on me. Like, oh, men never talk about their feelings and, and men are men are conditioned to never show emotion. And then when a man does, they're like, oh, my God, he's, he's putting his emotion. He's, a, he's putting his emotional labor on me, a woman. I already have enough emotional labor. And I talked about this on an, ep on an older episode because it really just sickened me. It really just sickened me where I saw like that people were creating these templates and sharing them like basically automated messages where if a friend messages you, like sends you a text message, basically wanting to, you know, sort something out that they're going through, you send them this automated message that somebody else on the internet wrote. And this was making its rounds. This wasn't just one little thing. This was something that people were like, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to have to do that. And people were doing this. This is something that people were actually doing. And you send them this automated message, basically a template that says like, hi, like I, I see that you're going through stuff, but basically like I'm too exhausted and dealing with my own issues to help you or talk to you. And it was all like rooted in this idea that like we all have enough emotional labor to deal with. And yeah, of course there are times where like a friend calls you or a friend wants to talk about their problems and you just, you have enough going on. Or the thing they're talking about is just so trivial where it's, you know, I understand the idea, 
that you don't always want to deal with somebody else's problems. But to send them a template response, like to send them like basically an automated response, it's the equivalent of those messages that your phone has when someone calls you when you're driving that say like, sorry, I can't answer. I'm driving. Sorry, I'm driving. It's basically that except it's a template to how to respond to somebody who is going through a problem. And I was just like, that's so, so sick. Like at the very least, if you can't deal with your friend's problem, at the very least, type it out in your own, with your own fat fingers, you know, your own skinny fingers, whatever kind of fingers you got, your own bony fingers, your weird bony fingers that like alternate part of them, part of them is fat, part of them skinny and bony. You got weird fingers. I know you got weird fingers, but no, at least type it out with your own fingers, which is what I've always said on here. That's what I've always said on here. I have. I've always said, like, make an effort to not let auto, you know, it, like, I, I do this. I don't do it with everybody, but I do it with certain people. And I would never be able to explain why. It's a weird little superstitious thing I do. But with certain people, like, if autocorrect fixes a word for me, like, if I misspell something and autocorrect automatically fixes it, I go back and I retype it correctly. I don't send the autocorrected version, even though I'm just writing, and that seems like a huge waste of time. I mean, it's a matter of two seconds. Somebody would think I'm completely insane for doing that, but I want it in my own hand. I want to be the one saying it. And like I said, I don't do that with everybody. There are some people that I'm so close to that I, I don't care if autocorrect does it because I don't think that it's necessary, but there's a couple people in my life, for whatever reason... I make sure to write it in my own hand. Like I've just developed this. I don't know. I, I don't know where I came up with that. It was just kind of intuitive. It's, it's not a great idea. I don't, if you're short on time, I'm not telling you to do that, but it just, it became very apparent to me that like, I don't want any part of this communication to be AI speaking for me. Cause that's what that is. That's like a cyborg talking for you. You know, it's not full on, you're not a total Android at that point, but your phone is the one talking for you when you do that. Even though it's like fixing your mistake, it's still, I don't know, it's still doing it for you. And no, like, you know, if Microsoft Word or something corrects something for you, that's different. Like this is like a communication to another human being. And that's why I emphasize that. But that's kind of like what these templates are. They're, they're, it's like you're letting AI speak for you, and therefore you're, it's just a slippery slope to becoming a cyborg. It's, it's a gradual slope, but it still feels like a slippery slope to me where like, I don't want my phone to do the talking for me. Oh my God, that's so weird. Oh my God, that's, you, you need to go talk to somebody. That is such a weird, obsessive, compulsive superstition you you need to talk to a therapist about that no yeah I'll, I'll tell the therapist to do that i'll tell them to do that they probably send all kinds of templates out but this thing where it was like if your friend is going through a hard time you send them this this automated response that somebody on the internet came up with for you it's just ad-libs, mad-libs.
And it just kind of sickened me that like, and that was coming from people who are all about like your feelings and like being there for people and talking about your emotions and going to therapy. But I think the attitude is kind of like, I have too much emotional labor. Therefore, you should talk to somebody else or talk to a professional. And it kind of plays into that cliche you hear, like when Robin Williams committed suicide, which I heard about from my mom. Like I got, a, I was just hanging out at my house. And I got a late night message from my mom. And all it said was Robin Williams committed suicide. <laughs> you know, and I'm not, I'm not laughing at Robin Williams killing himself. I'm just, uh, that message was so unexpected and blunt. Like my mom wasn't, a, you know, she was new to phones and stuff. So it's like, it was just this very blunt, direct message. that just said Robin Williams committed suicide. Like a sentence that I never thought I would hear. Never, I never thought I would read that. But after that, like, there were all these people who were like, because, you know, people are killing themselves all the time, even well-known people, even people who are, you know, musicians and actors and people. But, you know, I mean, you know, I understand why it affected people. I mean, Robin Williams is a foundation of everybody's lives and uh, a very well-known, well-loved celebrity. I understand why it impacted people. I'm not saying that, but like it, there was this response where like all these people were like, if, if, if anybody's ever depressed and you ever need somebody to talk to, I'm here for you. Like a guy said something. We actually published an article on the website that I was working for, on the, on the company that I was working for. And like somebody quoted a guy who was like, if you ever need an ear, I got two of them. Fuck depression. Kind of like that. Fuck cancer. Fuck depression. You saw a lot of that. But people always say that, like, when someone commits suicide, like, especially if it's a very well-known public figure, they're like, if anybody ever needs to talk, I'm here. That's, a, that's the exact same person who would send you an automated message saying, I can't deal with your problem right now because I already got enough emotional labor and I'm exhausted. It's the same person, actually. So, you know, there's a lot of weird shit going on with this stuff. And it's become so popular. And it's so feminized, too, that it just it doesn't speak to me at all. Like, I've actually, I've responded so much more heavily. Like, you're talking about years past where, like, I, I had much worse substance abuse issues, much dark, a much darker perspective. Yeah, I still like to talk shit. I still like to rant. But my outlook was just much more cynical and negative. And I can tell you that, like, a soft approach didn't help me with that. A soft approach to that did not help at all. And when I think about just little things I heard, it was like a lot of it, a lot, a lot of the stuff that helped me personally was fairly austere. You know, it wasn't like pseudo drill sergeant self-help crap. That's like, you need to man up. But it's not that far off from that either. A similar kind of sentiment. I mean, basically an idea that helped me was like, you don't get to decide what's going to be good for you. Like, you personally don't get to choose. Like, you have to take any option available. That really blew my mind. Just the idea that, oh, yeah, you know, 
I don't get to choose what's going to improve my life. I mean, to some degree you do. Especially if you're already doing well. If you've already, if you've established a good foundation, you have a lot more choice. But if you're feeling really dark and cynical, you don't really have that much choice. Like you really have to, whatever is available, whatever opportunity is available, you have to take it. And for somebody that could be going to therapy, for some people that might be drugs, that might be a medication, pharmaceuticals if they really need it. It might be a soft approach. You know, just like I've said, I make fun of Fitbits. Oh, I'm going to get my steps in. Oh, dude, I dude, I feel so good. I got 12,000 steps today. Like I can't imagine counting my steps. But if that works for somebody, nothing I say can take that away from them. If you're using a Fitbit and that's making a difference for you. Like I had a friend who, like when Pokemon, when Pokemon Go came out, all these people were really into it, and I had a friend who didn't get a lot of exercise. You know, she wasn't very active, and like all these people we knew were mocking it, were making fun of it all the time. It was like, oh god, because that was like that period where like you would drive by the waterfront and there'd be like eighty people all playing Pokemon Go. You'd drive by a park, you'd go to a park, and everybody there would be playing Pokemon Go. All these people I knew were playing it. It's this amazing thing. It's Pokemon Go. But uh, all these people were mocking it. And my friend said to me, she, she was like, you know, people are talking all this shit about Pokemon Go. But she was like, you know, it's it's the thing that's getting me out walking. She was like, you know, I haven't felt great. And I haven't wanted to really go out and do anything. And she's like, I'm getting out. I'm getting outside way more often. You know, I'm getting exercise. And I was like, that rules. I mean, that's a Fitbit. Pokemon Go is a Fitbit. It's true, though. I mean, like, I could never make fun of that. If that's what's doing something for you, who could argue with that? And that's the great thing about something working for you is that nothing anybody else says can influence you otherwise because you know if it's working or not. Like, there are people who try to give you diet advice and they're like, don't eat that. Oh, you, you're eating low-fat yogurt? you know how much sugar's in that? you know how much sugar... You know, anything low-fat is bad for you. And it's like, if you're eating low-fat yogurt and you feel okay and you have a healthy lifestyle, who gives a shit? You know if it's bad for you or not. Chances are, if you listen to yourself, you know the difference if something you're consuming is bad for you. So it's the same thing with a Fitbit, you know, where it's like, that's an option that's available to you. And if that is going to make a difference in you getting your steps in, moving around, that's cool. I'm going to make fun of it. But if it works for you, that makes no difference. Because I'm I'm not saying like, you know what, if you use a Fitbit, you're going to go to hell. Did you know that people who use Fitbits go to hell? You know, it's not like I feel that strong about it. I'm just going to kind of make fun of it because I, I, like, I worked with somebody who had one and they'd always be like, oh, I need to get my steps in. Oh, last night I got this many steps. And I was just always like, that's so funny. That's so silly. But yeah, like, I mean, just considering every option that's available to you. And suicide's always a weird one because like, I've always been like, that's an option. Suicide's always an option, and we know that. We all know that. But by recognizing that it's an option, I'm more conscious of it. And in my, in, for me, 
I'm less likely to want to commit suicide if I know that it's always there, but I'm going to do everything to avoid it rather than just block it out completely. It's kind of like that pacifist thing I've talked about where it's like if you say you're a pacifist and you could never commit an act of violence, you might end up in a really big shock when you have to commit an act of violence and self-defense. When war, if a war erupts all around you, you know, yeah, maybe you're just, you'd be the monk who lights yourself on fire. Or like, uh, <laughs> Miles always mentions a story that I, I forgot about years ago, but when George W. Bush was in office, I don't know what the event was. I don't know if it was when he got reelected or when we started one of the wars in the Middle East, but there was a free jazz musician in Chicago who lit himself on fire. He self-immolated in response to George W. Bush and Miles he he always he always reminds me of that because it's so freaking <laughs> like it's so sad because it's like that guy's just forgotten like nobody remembers the free jazz musician who lit himself on fire and died in response to george w bush and now you have george w bush giving speeches about like domestic terrorism and all these people who were like oh here we are political again but all those people who were like, oh, my God, like George W. Bush, he calls everybody terrorists, like he calls every Middle Eastern person terror. He just calls somebody a terrorist so that he can send them to Guantanamo. He's just calling people terrorists so he can send them to Guantanamo, black ops site, you know. You know, he mislabels people terrorists. He lied about WMDs. And then he comes out and he's like, oh, the, the people at January 6th are, are white domestic terrorists and we need to go after them. And people are like, yeah, oh, yeah. It's like, remember when he lied about terrorists before? And you hated him for it, and you trust him now, but that guy burned himself to death over George W. Bush. I'm just like, wow, how come nobody did that for Donald Trumpsfeld? Those free jazz musicians need to get it in check and immolate themselves for Donald Trumpsfeld. But you know, for me, it's like the pacifist thing where it's like, I believe in peace. I don't believe in starting fights, getting into fights. I dread the idea of violence, but I would never call myself a pacifist because I don't want to be shocked if a situation, I don't want to have an identity crisis. And that's get, you know, that, that just that point has gotten me in trouble. Like I was dating a girl and I know I've told this story, but it's like, I was dating a girl and we were like in my kitchen drinking like Trader Joe's wine or something that girls like. And, uh, <laughs> Trader Joe's box wine and we were just having a philosophical conversation like she she was a Catholic but very liberal and a few years younger than me and like we were just talking about like philosophical points and like maybe I was being like kind of a maybe I was kind of posturing a little bit or something but I, I made the point where I was like well I know I could kill somebody like I know that I have the capacity to kill somebody which is why I don't it's like I was saying about suicide. Like, I know suicide is an option. And knowing that helps me strengthen myself so I don't do that. It helps me avoid that because I know it's possible. Like, if I don't know, if I don't think something's possible, I'm way more likely to be caught by surprise. 
Same thing with violence, where it's like, if I don't think that I'm capable of violence, violence might catch me by surprise, my own capacity for violence. And if you if you think that you don't have the capacity for violence, you're a liar. You're a human, especially if you're a man. And if you're a woman, well, you have the capacity for violence, you know, to a lesser degree, but you certainly have the capacity to cheerlead for violence. So to think that you're some pacifist, I feel like is just setting yourself up, but that's how I feel about suicide too, which is violence. Suicide is violence. But I, I don't know. I just, I try to keep all those possibilities. It's like, it's like the idea, like the motivational idea of like, yeah, you want to have an ideal for what you want to achieve, but sometimes it can be helpful to have an ideal of like what you don't want to have happen too, and be fighting against that. It's like, I want to be able to pay my rent. And that's because I'm well aware of what happens when I don't do that. So denying that reality, you know, might actually, denying the reality of like the bad outcome might actually slow you down and actually get in your way. But um, going back to just the therapy industry as a whole, the tone and the language and everything is just so far removed from what motivates me. And like, I'm not some warrior, you know, I'm not some military veteran, but still that kind of stuff speaks to me more. Like I was talking, you know, about youth football and how the fact that there's a certain amount of criticism and your coach can yell at you and be hard on you. And if you understand what he's, as long as he's not a monster, like if you understand what he's doing, and I mean, there was a story about Bill Belichick, who over the years I've grown a lot of respect for, like I used to hate him, just like everybody. I used to be like, oh, Bill Belichick, the Patriots cheat. And over the years, I've developed a lot of respect for Bill Belichick. Once I realized how good he is, like once I got past the fact that like, oh, the Patriots you know, beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl that year. They win too much. You know, it's I, once I got over that, I was like, man, that guy's amazing. And he's a rebel. He refuses to be part of the coaches union. He's the only coach to not be part of the coaches union. He's extremely stoic, doesn't say anything. He's just had an incredible coaching career. But Tony Gonzalez had a story about when he was in the Pro Bowl where, you know, the Pro Bowl is just supposed to be a little bit fun. It's the all-star game for the NFL. So guys, like, they don't try to hurt each other. They don't hit each other as hard. You know, they're all competitors. They're all guys who are very competitive. Like, people have talked about how Michael Jordan, like, even in a game of horse or or a pickup game, like how Michael Jordan's just as competitive. That's just in his spirit. Like, that's why he's so good, is that if you just play table tennis with Michael Jordan, he's going to get really serious and try to beat you. It matters to him. And so the Pro Bowl has a little bit of that, like, because these guys are all competitive. They're the best of the best. So even a fun game is going to be competitive to them. But they're not trying to go all out. And Tony Gonzalez had a story about how, like, 
Bill Belichick was the Pro Bowl co- Pro Bowl coach of his team one year, and Tony Gonzalez just like kind of half-assed, like barely touched a guy. Like he was supposed to block a guy, and he just like barely touched him. And when he got up to the sidelines, Bill Belichick was like, "What the heck's wrong with you? Why didn't you block him?" And Tony Gonzalez was like, what the fuck? Like, what a dick. Like, this is the Pro Bowl game. Like, we're, we're having fun. This doesn't matter. Like, what a dick. Like, Belichick is taking this way too seriously. He yelled at me. The Pro Bowl co- coach yelled at me. That's not supposed to happen. But he was so pissed off. Like, Tony Gonzalez was so pissed off at Bill Belichick for getting mad at him for not hitting a guy hard enough in the Pro Bowl. The, the next time that he was supposed to block a guy, he completely leveled him because he was like, I'm going to show Belichick like I'm going to I'm going to show him. And so he did it. And then when he got to the sidelines after that, Belichick was like, great block, Gonzalez. And Tony Gonzalez, like after Belichick complimented him, he felt good. And he was like, holy shit, he just got me to do what he wanted me to do. He just coached me. Because that's what coaching is. It's like there's the phrase coaching someone up. And I think that's what he said. He was like, he just coached me up. Like he got me to do it. Like he he stoked my inner fire and got me to do what he wanted me to do. And I was like, it's incredible. How he, he And he didn't even realize it. Like he didn't even realize that Belichick criticizing him actually made him do the thing that Belichick wanted him to do. He was just kind of doing it out of spite. But it gave him the drive to actually do it without even realizing it. And I thought that was just such an incredible story. And that's Bill Belichick in a nutshell. And kind of like, you know, kind of like Michael Jordan taking a pickup game super seriously. That's what Bill Belichick was doing. It's like we're playing a game. Yeah, this might be the all-star game. This might be the Pro Bowl. We're kind of having fun, like we're on vacation in Hawaii or wherever they go. But Bill Belichick, guess what? He still wants to win. He's still Bill Belichick. There's a reason why he's one of the most successful football coaches of all time. And I respond way more to that stuff too. Like I respond way more to something like that. Like somebody else would be like, dude, he's so mean. Oh my God, that's mean. But it's like the stuff that's helped me improve my life. It's stuff that kind of stokes my inner fire, that gives me resilience. It's not the soft touch. And there's a time and a place for that. There's a time and a place to, for a soft touch or whatever. But, you know, for me, like the, the fact that all of this stuff that's supposed to help people is framed around that. And, you know, I think that's more effective for women. I don't think it's a coincidence that the entire demographic for this therapy website that I work for was women of a certain age. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. But I think like something that women sometimes don't understand is that doesn't work for everybody, but it specifically doesn't work for a lot of men. And they don't understand that. Like they don't understand that that doesn't speak to men. Maybe a certain type of man. Maybe a man in a very specific situation. But as a general rule, it just really doesn't do much. And it's what I see on Instagram. Like I get on Instagram and like on occasion, I'll like look through the stories that people are posting 
And you, there's these infographics that are very popular. There's these kind of like pop psychology, pop therapy infographics that like talk about self-care and emotional labor and like little tips and advice on how to like take it easy and give yourself a break. And it's all women. I don't know any men who share things like that. Not because it's uncool. Not because they'll lose their card to the man club. I don't even have a card to that. I think, I think they got rid of that. I think they got rid of the man club. But uh, it's always, that stuff speaks to women. Like, I don't know any men who are like, oh, you know what you need to do? You, you need to practice self-care. Oh, you know what you need? You need to practice self-care. Because I think you've been you've been handling too much emotional labor. I wouldn't think less of a man for saying that. I just wouldn't think anything. I wouldn't respond to that. I'd be like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, if I said that to one of my friends, like, sometimes you might say, like, yeah, you should take it easy. Take it easy. Whatever that means to you. But, like, this language is part of the problem. So it's not that men don't want help. Like, I think there is something natural in men that, like, makes you want to solve your own problems. Like, it goes back to the silly old joke about, like, men not asking for directions when they're lost. I think there is something about men that says, like, I want to sort this out. I don't want to give in and ask somebody else. It's not ego. There's just something inside of you that's like, I want to solve this puzzle myself. I don't want to use a strategy guide here. I don't want any cheat codes. And, you know, I think that's true for self-improvement, for mental health, as they say. But, you know, I think that's part of the disconnect is that it's like the language you're using and the way this is framed, not only does it not appeal to most men, to a lot of men, it makes them want to go the opposite direction. And maybe that's a good thing in a lot of cases. And I'm sure not all clinical therapy is like that. You know, I'm sure it varies based on who's doing it and all that. But I certainly know a little bit about the industry surrounding it. And the industry has that tone. And then what compounds that is the fact that a lot of people who get help, I don't really see that much improvement. I, like, I see them kind of dwelling, and maybe that's just these individuals, but I see them kind of dwelling on the same old shit. And I think sometimes they get told what they want to hear. And then part of it, too, is like I know some people who I believe they've told stories that have a spin to them or aren't entirely true and their therapist kind of gives them advice based on that so it's kind of like this house of cards based on bullshit where it's like you know because a lot of people have trouble admitting when they're wrong and like i think some people go to therapy and they're like oh my parent did this this and this or didn't didn't do this this and this and how is the therapist going to know how is the therapist going to know if that's right or wrong 
Like I've known at least one person, I know more than one, but I know one person in particular who has manufactured a lot of issues with their parents. And I know for a fact that it's these are these issues have been exaggerated and to some degree completely manufactured. And I don't know like what a therapist could offer that person. And I, I believe this person's been to some therapy, but I don't know what a therapy could offer that person given what they're telling the therapist isn't even accurate. So they might very well be actually reinforcing that way of thinking and being like, oh yeah, you are the victim. But, uh, you know, that's, that's just one of the issues with it is that it's like, you have to, there has to be a degree of accuracy to it. And then, um, I don't know, I mean, sometimes people really need that. You know, sometimes people really need to have a stranger, somebody objective to talk to. So I'd never take that away from them. And I know that they give you tools. Like, I know a little bit about that. I know a little bit about some of the tools, the different methods. Some of it involves breathing. There's some interesting techniques that go on some physical techniques that I think are kind of cool that they will teach people. But, you know, some of that too, it goes back to that idea from Carl Jung, modern man in search of a soul, where he says, you know, some people like their parents will always be these larger than life looming figures. And they'll never be able to just see them as human beings. Whereas he said, there's another type of person who understands that their parents are simply human beings. And when you blame your parents or you see your figures as these, you see your parents as these larger than life figures, it kind of never ends because you go, oh, well, what were their parents like? And what were their parents like? Why did they end up the way they were? Like, if you're blaming people, you can keep going back. And yeah, there are exceptions where sometimes people have really shitty parents who are abusive, manipulative, and mean, and horrible. Like, that's a different story. But there are people who just, good or bad, they will see their parents as these larger-than-life figures. And they can, they just, and Carl Jung said, they will never get over that. It's just kind of, it's, it's like ingrained in them to see them that way. And that's not how I see my parents. Like, I see my parents as people. And uh, I know a little bit about their parents. I know a thing or two, maybe even about the great-grandparents. Like, my mom's mom was bipolar. They were in utter poverty. She was psychologically abusive to the kids, physically abusive, abusive to just like two of them. There were like seven kids, but she was, she singled out just two of them and would hit them, but not the other kids, which is going to fuck up everybody. But her mom was married seven times and some of those men abused her, my grandma, who I never met, my mom's mom. So it's like she was really messed up. But it's like, 
her mom had men coming in and out of the house, all, all, all sorts of stuff, you know, all sorts of stuff I won't mention. But, uh, and then like you look at my mom's dad who she never met. So it's like right there, I see a human story. Right there, you know that you're dealing with human beings. And uh, how far back do you want to take it? It's like my friend Nick said once, he's like, there's a rapist in every family tree. And what he meant by that is like, if you trace back your genetic line far enough, far enough in history, maybe back to the beginning, maybe back to the dawn of man. But his point was, is that like, at some point in your genetic line, somebody reproduced probably coercively, probably through rape. It's almost like an original sin idea where it's like somewhere in your genetic line, probably pretty deep in, in most people, but not everybody. There's people walking the planet right now who are the product of rape. And that alone should tell you that it's probably somewhere back there when you think about all your ancestors. So that was a very profound statement. And I think he may have gotten that from his friend, but he told me, so I'm going to credit him for the sake of this discussion, but it was something that, and he wrote a story, he was working on a story, I don't think he ever finished it, but it involved like a caveman seeing a woman at the river, like washing up, and the caveman just forces himself on her. And that was influenced by that idea of like, there's a rapist in every family tree. So it's like, there's original sin, there's imperfection in everybody's genetic line. You know, some people are the product of infidelity. And that's a human story, once again. You're not dealing with demigods here. But you know what? You wouldn't be here thinking your thoughts. You wouldn't be here getting to experience life without those incidents, without those imperfections. If those imperfections weren't there, you wouldn't even be here. So that's crazy. <laughs> if you didn't have a rapist somewhere in your family tree, and maybe somebody doesn't, but I would bet just about everybody does somewhere. But without that, you wouldn't be here. That's crazy. So do you want to take it back that far? Like if you look at your parents and you say they were imperfect, they did this or didn't do this. And then you look at their parents and you say, well, I know a little bit about them and they did this and didn't do this for my parent. You can just keep going back. It's eventually going to be lost to time. I mean, I don't, I don't know about my great-great-grandparents. I know a thing or two about some imperfect things with my great-grandparents on both sides. Little things. Substance abuse. But uh, 
Yeah, I don't know anything really beyond that. I wouldn't be able to tell you about the great-great-grandparents. So you can see that like those imperfections are forgotten with time. And so there's, you know, a certain forgiveness that you have to do. For me, I've never had to forgive my parents. I think they did a great job given they're human beings. And, I, you know, they divorced, but that might have been the right decision. I've never had to forgive them for anything. But, I mean, I think you can practice a general forgiveness General forgiveness. Is that a was he was he a military commander? He was. <laughs> he was a military commander. General forgiveness. But now you can practice a general forgiveness and just be like, yeah, you know, a certain amount of imperfection led to me being here. And guess what? I get to carry that on too, because I'm imperfect. I'm fallen. You know, and if you can forgive your genetic line even that rapist caveman somewhere far back there well then you can certainly forgive yourself you know I'm, i don't think i've ever had to forgive myself certainly there are things that i regret and things that i wish i wouldn't have done but i haven't had to forgive myself for anything too serious but once again it's, you can take it as kind of a general thing where you just let things go because I've certainly dwelled on things from my past. I've dwelled on things I've done. I've dwelled on things I've said. And the idea is like, well, just don't do it again if you can help it. Oh, you didn't like that you did that one time? You didn't like that you said that? Well, what you can do is not do it again. People have a hard time with that, though. Sometimes you just keep doing things. Oh, you didn't like when you got blackout drunk? Well, you can start by not doing it again. Whatever that takes. For me, it was stopping drinking, but... You know, if you find yourself... Oh, I got blackout drunk. I keep getting black blackout drunk every time I drink. Well, I could start by not doing that. But I mean, you know, this is a, be an interesting conversation with a therapist. Telling a therapist like, oh, well, I, my friend said that there's a rapist in every family tree. And I, I've forgiven him. <laughs> I've forgiven that rapist in my family tree. Oh my God, you're schizophrenic. I'm, I'm going to diagnose you with something. That's the other side of it. And you know what? I'd never read this before. I read a Carl Jung quote, incidentally. I was re trying to read about something else. It was a, an article a woman wrote, a very smart psychologist. Um, I was reading an article she wrote about some of the current, so I think it was from 2017, but it was about some of the current just social psychosis going on even then. It's not like the psychosis is new. And she quoted Carl Jung, and it was a quote from him I hadn't seen. And she mentioned, he uh, was, no, he was actually, it was Carl Jung talking about social psychosis, and it was spot on. It was so good. 
And he was saying, um, what was he saying? What prompted me to think of that? Um, forgetting, I'm forgetting what actually made me think of that. But he was just talking about how the thing you should fear the most is social psychosis. Collective psychosis. And how if the majority of a population gets caught up in a social psychosis, be afraid. And that's what scares me right now, is seeing people caught up in a social psychosis. Because you, you can't talk them out of it. All you can do is resist it when you recognize it. I'm trying to think. There was something in there, though. I'll think of it if it matters. But there was something in there that made me want to think about it. Um, with, um, I don't know, I'm drawing a blank here. I apologize. So sorry. I gotta forgive myself for this. This is what I have to forgive myself for. I have to forgive myself for this show. Believe you know, believe me. I for, I have to forgive myself every day, every time I do one of these. Um, but no, it's it's nice when you read a Carl Jung quote that you haven't seen, and you're just like, oh yeah, of course. You know, because what makes you know, it's funny that like I'll I'll see rationalists who hate him. Like I was hanging out with a girl a few years ago and I brought up Carl Jung and maybe that was an obnoxious thing for me to do. But we were talking about some of this kind of stuff and she like rolled her eyes and she was like, oh, Carl Jung. And I was like, what's the problem with him? And she was like, you know what? Nothing. Like I kind of like I called her bluff. Like she like rolled her eyes and was like, oh, Carl Jung. And I was like, well, what's wrong with him? And she was like, you know what? Nothing. <laughs> it was funny. It was like I appreciated it. I was like, thank you. You know, uh, like, what do you got? Because I've read some like of these rationalist analyses, analyses, analyses of him, and they really don't like him. Like rationalists, so-called rationalists, you know, have really turned on him. I think because there is this sort of spiritual, metaphysical component to it, and you know, someone who's not into that doesn't want to read it they think that he's going out on a limb but that's what makes him relevant to me is that he manages to bridge the gap between psychology and spirituality which is another aspect of all this that is largely absent because you think about how the priest used to be people's therapist whether that was good or bad just like a therapist i'm sure that it was effective in some cases not effective in others oh no see I remember exactly what made me think of the Carl Jung quote. He was talking about how our demons today come in the form of you know, psychological conditions. In this same quote where he was talking about social psychosis, he was talking about how our demons today, like what would have been what have, what would have once been called demonic possession, possession um, today comes in the form of like a diagnosis. And I talked about this probably last year or the year before where I was talking about like the God of stress. 
Or like when you're stressed out, you just think, oh, I'm experiencing this thing called stress. But I don't think it's a horrible idea to be like, oh, I'm possessed. Because you are possessed. Like when you get angry, you are suddenly possessed by anger. You weren't feeling that a second ago. And all of a sudden, you are completely caught up in this nasty feeling. And it's coming out of you. And your defenses are also weakened. And when you're angry, things are coming into you. Something already came into you to prompt that. But now your defenses are down and your spiritual immunity is compromised while you're angry, while you're emotional. And so you are possessed. People aren't stupid in the past for making a correlation between those behaviors and demonic possession. It's just that was the best way for them to understand it. And someone in a certain time and place might go talk to their priest. They might talk to a guru. They might talk to a spiritual master. Whoever has that role in a given belief system. Because that's, I mean, it is a belief system. We forget that. We forget that psychotherapy is a belief system. And all of these belief systems have worked for people. It's not like every single person who was said to be possessed by an evil spirit. You know, it's not like every single time that that was the diagnosis back then. It's not like every time it didn't work or it was wrong. I bet there are many examples of people where it was like someone, some spiritual master was like, you're possessed by an evil spirit. And we're going to do this, this, and this to exercise it. And sometimes it probably worked, probably not every time. But what are we seeing now with psychotherapy? You think that has a 100% success rate? Just like I said, I know people who they're still possessed. They go to therapy all the time. They're obsessed with therapy. They're obsessed with self-care. They don't seem to have solved the problem. So the idea that, you know, who knows what the success rate was. But still, you could have success with that framework, within that framework. And Carl Jung understood that because he made that connection. What we once called demons, we now call psychological disorders or even just an emotional state. The God of stress, the God of anxiety. You know, it's almost like deity yoga. You know, in... Uh, Talking about like Eastern spirituality, you know, Hinduism, Tibetan Buddhism. You want to think about, you know, the wrathful deities and the benevolent deities. And how deity yoga is identifying with a certain God, but with a certain sense of purpose. And you identify with a wrathful deity, not to be a nasty person but to express what you need to express within that context, within the context of like, I'm channeling this wrathful deity who represents this, this, and this. They're not, it's not just an excuse to be negative. It's a controlled way of dealing with destructive or negative qualities. And of course, it's true for the benevolent deities as well. Deity yoga is you are, because when you think about the word yoga, which is, you know, basically means union. It's a spiritual union. 
So deity yoga is you are achieving a certain unity with one of these wrathful or benevolent deities with a sense of purpose during meditation. Because the thing is about when you're possessed by the god of stress, you're just stressed out and you don't feel in control of it. But if you can kind of, you know, it's not like you, I don't think about deity yoga. Like when I'm feeling stressed out, I don't go like, oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know, partaking in deity yoga with the God of stress, but you can kind of act that out. You can kind of remember that this is a form of possession and attempt to control it or achieve some sort of purpose with it achieve some kind of meaning so I don't think those ideas are as far away as we think they are I don't think they're as silly as we often think they are oh they used to think that you know oh, they used to think that uh, manic depression was a a demon and they would try to exercise the demon. Well, that ritual is probably effective. We can see where rituals just come up all the time. We, we're still doing rituals. You know, people have developed all kinds of rituals with coronavirus. People were doing weird rituals during the racial protests and riots. There's a lot of very impractical rituals going on. And I don't say impractical to mean that there was no purpose or meaning behind them, but just to say that it's like they didn't need to do that. Like it didn't have any immediate practical purpose to do that. And so an exorcism, you know, it might be silly to see some TV evangelist like Bob Larson pull a demon out of somebody on stage but it's it's a ritual and it's symbolic and uh you know if that's an effective way of thinking about things like if that if that fits your and the reason it works is because the person believes in that A religious or spiritual person could benefit from that because they believe in it. If they're a true believer and they believe in evil and demonic entities, well, an exorcism might impact them quite a bit differently than it would impact you. And I mean, you see that with psychotherapy where... I've heard that people who are mandated to attend therapy, you know, criminals, for example, like when a criminal is required to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist as part of their, you know, as part of their punishment, I guess, it often, you know, they, they go through the motions, but it, it has a far less, as a far... Um, more limited impact on them 
Whereas if somebody goes to therapy and they truly believe in that process and they find the right person, the right therapist, that's going to have a much greater impact on them because it fits their belief system because it is one. And there will be another belief system that looks at therapy and says, wasn't that silly? Wasn't it silly that they just, they called these certain sets of behavior this, they diagnosed people with this. And that's effective for us right now because it's not based on nothing. It's based on a certain set of behaviors, certain patterns. And we've developed tools on dealing with that based on the world we live in right now and the language we use now and our, under, our understanding of the world right now. But it's not some total absolute understanding. And there very well could be some other system that comes to replace that in future years. And they'll read psychological textbooks and say, isn't it silly that they thought that was effective? And they already do that. You know that's going to happen because if you look at a, a, a psychology textbook from the 1970s, you're going to see things that someone today says is bullshit. Oh, we figured it out. We know better now. I was just talking about the trans thing in the last episode. That's already happened where if you look at older psychology textbooks, and not that old, not that long ago, the way they talk about gender dysphoria is completely different from the way that modern liberals think of it. And they've influenced the institutions, they've influenced the framework, the belief system, where certain people have a fundamentally different belief about gender dysphoria in 2021 than they did in 2015 or 1970. And they look back at 1970 or 2018 for that matter, and they say, oh, that was so wrong. We've learned since then. But the mistake people make is thinking that it's always going to be told in a psychological framework, that that's always going to be understood in a psychological framework. And what makes religious or spiritual guidance or rituals seem so outdated and weird is the fact that it's religious and spiritual. And we think that psychology and psychiatry and psychotherapy, like we think that's so fundamentally different. It's easier to look at like the definition of gender dysphoria 10 or 20 years ago and say, oh, we still have the same belief system, but our beliefs are better now, are more expansive we understand it better whether that's true or not is very questionable but that's what some people think but because it's still in the framework of modern psychology which is very modern very modern you know carl jung and sigmund freud they weren't that long ago these pioneers it wasn't that long ago that these guys completely revolutionized the subject But, uh, you know, it's easier to be like, oh, our perspective is evolving, but it's still within this current belief system. But there will be another belief system if humans continue to live. There will be another framework. And psychology will seem silly and outdated as a whole. It could be another spiritual. It could be back and forth. 
it wouldn't entirely surprise me because I mean I think a lot more people are thinking about these things spiritually now something interesting that happened yesterday was a good friend of mine her ex-boyfriend who's been kind of stalkerish and weird sent her this like weird ugly like iridescent rose in a in glass as I guess a Christmas present or something and she didn't want it it was unsolicited she doesn't want anything to do with him so she sold it online she sold it on uh, you know Facebook marketplace or something like that and she met up with a guy who wanted to buy it amazingly a guy wanted to buy it and he was like a you know a senior citizen aged like a 60 something year old Mexican guy and he bought this rose, this, this uh, iridescent kind of like fake rose in a glass case. And when he bought it, he said, he asked my friend, they met up in a mall parking lot just to be safe. And he was like, I'll buy this from you, but only if you say you believe in God. And he wasn't trying to convert her or anything. He explained that he was like, I feel, I feel like this rose is evil. Or he's like, I feel like th this rose has like evil in it or something. And I, if you say you believe in God, I feel, he, what he said, he said, I feel like it's cursed. And he didn't know how she got it or anything. But he said, I feel like this rose is cursed. And he's like, just, I, I want you to say you believe in God. And she told him like, I don't really believe in God, but in that way, but I'll say it. And he wasn't looking to convert her or, you know, that sounds really fucking weird, right? And a lot of people would be like, oh, how dare he? But he said, I feel like this is cursed, and I just want you to say you believe in God, like, before you sell it to me, to, to lift the curse. And a lot of people have gotten very superstitious. I said that to her. She told me about it, but she said he was really nice. And she said, like, after, he, after she said that, after she, like, agreed, he was really cool. He gave her the money, and he went off. Like, he didn't hang out and try to, like, hand her a Bible. He didn't try to do anything else. He just wanted her to say she believed in God to, like, lift this curse. And what's funny is it was cursed. He had no idea where she got it. But it's like her weird stalkerish ex-boyfriend sent it to her. That sounds like it's cursed. And she got rid of it instantly. Like, the day she got it, she tried to sell it because she didn't want it. That's a cursed rose, man. That guy was, you know, who knows? Maybe he does that with everything he buys. You know, when I sold my mom's old bed a couple weeks ago, the people who bought it came into my house, and it was an old couple. They didn't ask me. We just want you to say you believe in God, and then we'll buy it. Because we think this bed is cursed. Well, I can tell you it wasn't cursed. But it's funny, because this rose kind of was cursed. It was an unsolicited gift from a boyfriend, from an ex-boyfriend who had given my friend a bunch of grief. And this guy just wanted her to lift the curse off of it as she gave it to him. And that was it. That's amazing to me. Maybe it was just a coincidence, but I thought it was funny because it kind of was a cursed rose. Like it was something that burdened her from somebody she didn't want. That kind of sounds cursed. But when she told me about it, like she was kind of weirded out by it, but I was like, you know what? Everyone's gotten really superstitious in the last couple of years. COVID has made people incredibly superstitious. A lot of people have gotten more religious. You hear a lot more talk about evil and demons. 
like some of the right wing people that I kind of pay attention to when that whole Travis Scott thing happened where a bunch of people died at his concert, they were like, this was in a, this was a gathering of evil. This was demonic. And my thought was like, I know what you're saying. Because it had a bunch of demonic imagery. It was hedonistic. The pictures of the event, it didn't look right. Like it, it looked like a bad place to go. Almost like, you know, I don't know, it just, it just looked like something, you know, dark. And, ba and something bad and confusing happened. People died. But I thought that was kind of silly because it's like, are you going to say that about a Slayer show? Like you go to a Slayer show where there's like, you know, it's satan there's satanic imagery. If a bunch of people got trampled at a Slayer show, are you going to be like, it's demonic and evil? You know, it's funny how people jump into that. But it, it shows me that a lot of people and a lot of the people I'm talking about, they're like new religious people. They're people who have converted to Christianity in the last few years. And I find their perspective very interesting. But it's also funny how they, because I think a lot of these people, my, my understanding of some of these people I'm talking about is that they were not religious or even atheists growing up. They're people who don't come from a religious background. But in the last number of years, there's been this new Christianity movement where people who are otherwise kind of counterculture or alternative have taken on Catholicism and Christianity. But it's funny how you see the same patterns play out where they get very scared and they, they start seeing evil in things. And I know what they're getting at when they looked at these photos of like a giant open mouth at this Travis Scott concert. And the imagery was very satanic. You know, there was something dark about it. But it's like to look at it and be like, it was pure evil. And I've seen that too, because I've watched some of these videos of parents who are upset about their children being indoctrinated at schools against their will with some of these social issues. It's crazy what's happening. But I've seen where the parents will be like, what you're doing is evil. And you know what? I, I know why you're saying that, because what's happening at schools is really screwed up. The things they're doing at schools, if, you, if you've been paying any attention, if you've watched some of these school board meetings... Like some of the evidence that's presented is insane. It relates to what I was talking about in the last episode. It relates to some of the race issues. This, this sudden shift is insane. And these parents are right to be outraged. But I've noticed that a lot of them jump to like, this is evil. And some of them might have always kind of had that evangelical bend to them. But I think a lot of it is kind of new. Like there's this newfound sense of good and evil that people are experiencing. Because we spent you know, at least a couple decades. Like I grew up at a time where like getting into comic books in the nineties, as, as I've talked about before, it was really like the time of the anti-hero where it's like, Oh, did you know everything's, you know, there's not, there's not really good and evil. There's kind of this gray area to everything. And image comics became the most popular publisher of comic books. And you think spawn was the most popular comic book. And I reread spawn some years back, you know, I was into it at the time when it came out, but I reread, like I, I bought some years back, I bought a bunch of graphic novels that compiled like a bunch of like the first, I don't know, 30 issues or something. And I read them, you know, just front to back in a short amount of time. And I was like, it's still really good. It's simple, but it, you know, it, it's, it was original. It tells an interesting story. I think Spawn's cool. 
but it was that era of like the anti-hero and spawn was the most popular comic and it dealt with the fact that like there is, you can't really see the world through a lens of absolute good and absolute evil and that's a good lesson but we had that anti-hero story like gen x loved that like older gen x and you forget how old some of the older gen xers are the gen xers gen xer you forget how old some of them are now And they were really into, like, so, so a lot of that stuff was coming from older Gen X. It wasn't coming from baby boomers. It was coming from, like, the, the older end of the Gen X spectrum. And a lot of what they were pushing, and you think about, like, a lot of the movies. Like, a lot of the movies that were even made for teenagers, you think about movies, or, or just young people in general. Like, you think about, like, the Doom Generation and a million other movies. Like, a lot of them were about just kind of doing nothing with an element of dread and nihilism and existentialism where it's like the, the people in those movies, they weren't good. They weren't bad. They were protagonists. And then, you know, and, and that came like in comic books, like image comics and that whole just, I mean, there was a period of time where if you opened up like a copy of wizard that magazine about comics, like every comic coming out was about existential, like superheroes were these existential characters with like mixed feelings about what they were doing, who didn't really understand their motivations. They looked kind of like bad guys because we all like the way bad guys look. Bad guys costumes always look cool. And Batman wasn't an anti-hero. He looks like one. You know, he, he's, Batman kind of was like, he kind of paved the road, like the Dark Knight idea kind of paved the road for actual anti-heroes in comic books is how I feel. But that came, all of that, like the anti-hero trend came on the heels of like decades of superheroes in bright costumes who are absolutely good. There's nothing confusing about what they're doing. They're not confused. You're not confused. The bad guy is the bad guy. It's very good and evil. And you can see where, like, what happened, like, after this anti-hero trend of the 90s and most of the 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s, you saw this sharp turn back into Marvel being all of the movies now are Marvel. It's all good and evil. And I haven't seen those movies, so they might be a little more deep than that. But I know those characters, those, Mar those old Marvel characters, and no matter what they do with them, I'm guessing that it's telling a basic story of good guys and bad guys. So you can see where like the cycle is like, we're going to tell stories that kind of have this sense of existential dread, where the good guys don't really feel like good guys, but they're still the protagonists. And the bad guys are still bad, but it's like... You, you, they have more of a, you have a better understanding of the bad guy's motivation and maybe what made him bad, you know, which does reflect real life in certain ways, but real life also has good and evil. So it's not like they exclude each other. It's just that we kind of cycle in and out of those stories. And then now, like for the last, I don't know, at least 10 years, we've been watching, I, the public has been watching these stories of good and evil good and bad. 
And you see that reflected in the way people talk, right? I just notice more and more people think in absolute good and evil right now. And it's not just the Christian evangelicals who are like, what you're doing is evil and satanic. It's also, you can see where the secular-minded left, who don't believe in God and don't believe in Satan, they use Hitler. Hitler is the Antichrist for secular atheists. He represents absolute evil to them. Nazis represent absolute evil to them. And they talk about them. It's like, it's, it, it, that's the reason why the left generalizes so much about Hitler and Nazis. That's the reason why anybody who they think, anybody who doesn't agree with them or is doing something that they don't like, that they think is socially destructive, no matter what that person believes, they will jump to calling them Nazi or, or Hitler. Because they're saying Nazi means evil and Hitler means Satan or the Antichrist. So the reason why they use that so broadly is because they don't believe in evil and Satan because they're secular, but the concept is there. They're just using different words. Because they trust me, they don't think of Hitler as a man. You know, and when I did that episode a while back where I was discussing like you know, you always hear the story of like, well, Hitler had his dog killed. Like Hitler had the cyanide pill tested on his dog. And I talked about that enough months ago. But like I, I, I talked about like why he might have done that. Because they said he was inconsolable. Like Hitler was apparently just weeping. He was devastated when the cyanide pill worked on his dog. And people tell that story to be like, oh, Hitler was such an evil guy. That he even had his he even had his own dog killed. But you know what? When they found Hitler and Ava's bodies in a crater, they buried them with their dogs. Like a Viking lord or something. You know, I talked in that episode about how when a Viking lord would die, they would kill his dog and bury it with him. So it's like Hitler's world died with him. And we also know that in war, people are insanely cruel to animals. There was recently, there was a, I think a police chief in the Midwest and somebody beheaded their dog and left it in front of their house. And they believe that it was a, a message. So it's like people kill their enemies' animals. They kill their enemies' children. Look at the way that people talk about Hunter Biden. Look at the way people talk about Donald Trump Jr. They don't treat them like human beings. Like even if those guys aren't great people, they don't deserve all the attention they get. Like it shouldn't matter to us that one of Joe Obama bin Biden's sons is a crackhead who screws prostitutes. Yeah, if there's other stuff that reflects on Jabama, you know, they, they, they said there was stuff on about deals he was making with foreign countries. But you start to understand why people kill, you know, there's like the story in England about like killing the, uh, the heirs and stuff like that. Like the two boys who were buried in the wall of the Tower of London, the two princes, their uncle had them killed 
and hid their bodies in the wall at the Tower of London. And, you know, you start to understand that, like, that impulse is still in us. And the way that people, like, like, just go to a website like Twitter and look at, like, when Donald Trump Jr. posts something and look at the comments from people who hate him. Like, those people in centuries past, they'd be like, we need to kill him. We, we need to kill, you know, we need to kill the old king's son because he still represents that king. He's still of that line. And it's like that same, that's in us. And it's like, you can see that with the way people talk about, you know, the, the Trump administration now. Where if you hear like the corporate media and the Democrats talk about the Trumpsfeld regime, like there's almost something in them. That it's like, they're like, they hate them. Like they hate them and they're trying to do everything they can to make that clear, even though we know that. Like, even though we know how they feel already. They can't seem to stop. And some of that's because like they're expected to do that, but some of it, you can tell they want to also. You can tell that's how they feel because they do it on their own private social media accounts as well. It's not just when they're on TV. They do it all the time. They do it in courtrooms. You know, it's, it's something they do all the time. And like, I was thinking about that recently and I was like, you know, it used to be that you would kill the previous regime. You would kill key figures. You would execute them. Like, if you, especially if you feel like they did something severe enough and they represent a threat. And we can tell that currently Democrats and corporate media, aside from Fox News, still see Trump as a threat. And they still see his supporters and the people who remained loyal to him until the end and are still loyal to him. They still see them as a threat and they talk about them as a threat. And you can tell there's almost like a genetic memory inside the elites where they're confused, where they're like, aren't we supposed to kill these people? Like, aren't we supposed to behead them? Like, how, aren't we just supposed to behead this guy? Isn't that what we've always done throughout history? So there's something in them. It's like, we become more humane. And maybe it's just because, maybe the only reason why we don't do that in the West is because there's too many eyes on it. Or maybe we have become more humane. I don't know. But still, it's like when you hear people talk about how much they hate their political opponents, especially after that person has already been removed from power and still seen as a threat, but, but removed from power, it's almost like the elites, like deep down inside of them, they're like, aren't we supposed to kill them? Like what happened? Like that primitive part of them that draws from the entire history of our species where they did that over and over again and they still do that in other parts of the world where you kill the guys who were in power last like there's something deep down inside of them that feels like there's this unreconciled energy or something there's this unreconciled impulse that's like weren't we supposed to kill them like what's going on it's like blue balls it's like i, I had an erection and I, I thought i was supposed to have sex We took that guy out of power. Aren't we supposed to kill him? Aren't we supposed to execute him? You know, I think there's something in us that still has that. And then you add in this very strong sense of good and evil, where even the secular left operates from this point of view that there is an Antichrist, Hitler. There is evil, Nazis. And so people who are doing things that you think are evil are Nazis. If it's an individual who you think is evil, he's Satan. 
That's why people were so, they thought Trumpsfeld was Satan, and they acted like it, and they still act like it. It starts to make a lot more sense when you realize that. But, you know, what's weird is if you watch interviews with people who knew Hitler, it's weird because you think, like, I've heard so much about this guy. And that person, like, actually shared a room with him. It's like when you watch his speeches, it's like he's so, uh, his speeches are so, um, like, his mannerisms and everything are so different from anything we've ever seen from a politician. The way he talks, I mean, obviously it's in German, so I can't understand it. But it's like the way he talks is so, it's literally foreign to us. His mannerisms are foreign to us because nobody moves like that now. But it's weird to watch videos of him sometimes and be like, this was a guy in a space standing just like I do. But it's hard to really even understand that. Because he has become the secular antichrist. He represents evil in our culture today. And then when you see people who knew him, which is always, I recommend doing that. Not even for the information, but just detach yourself. I mean, what they're saying is interesting too. Like what they have to say is interesting. But watch, watch video interviews of people who knew Hitler it's like there was a picture of Civil War veterans. Like, there's stuff that's just so weird to think about, like, because it's become so mythologized in our minds. Like, I saw this, I think it was a video or a photo a while back of two Civil War veterans who were still living, and it was in color. They were ancient. They were incredibly old. And they had obviously been young men during the Civil War. So they were these ancient elderly men. And I was just looking at it, and I was like, holy shit. Like, this is footage of men who were in battle in on on the united states you know in the united states like they fought wars they fought a war they were in battle here and i've heard so much about the civil war but it's like to humanize it by seeing people who actually fought in it is so crazy and that's kind of what it's like when you see these guys who actually were in the same room as hitler and spoke to him you see that and you're just like whoa Like, imagine, like, somebody that you know and just, like, thinking about the fact that, like, oh, that person was in the same room and talked to Adolf Hitler. It doesn't seem real, does it? Like, imagine somebody that you know, like, doesn't have to, it could be anybody you know, and just imagine if you knew that they had been in the same room as Hitler for any reason. We can't even really comprehend it because of what he represents to us in our culture today. Interesting stuff. But we have shifted toward this idea of good and evil right now. The left is evil. The right is evil. We are good. If you agree with me, you're good. To the point where we're willing to overlook bad behavior if someone's on our side. You know, you can hear when these like sex scandals come out. 
It's like when that Republican, I don't know if he was a congressman or a senator, but there was something where he was like grooming a, a young girl. He'd gone on a date or something with an underage girl. Like I always forget his name. Is it Gates? G-A-E-T-Z. I don't want to get the wrong guy, but some Southern politician where like it came out that he was grooming a young girl. And like as much as the right focuses on pedophiles, they're always like, the you know, the elites are pedophiles. That's a big talking point. Here's a guy who certainly sounds like he's into young girls. I don't know if any, I don't, I don't know what even came of that. I don't remember if anything definitive came, but I'm pretty sure he's still a Republican politician. And, uh, you know, you can see, though, where it's like people are willing to overlook that. Like Republicans are willing to overlook that because it's like, well... He wasn't convicted, and he's on our side, so we're going to kind of, you know, we're just going to let it go. We're not going to think about it. And you see the left does that, you know, all the time. You can see all these CNN guys, like that guy who was jerking off on his Zoom call in front of women, and he claimed it was an accident, and they didn't even fire him. You can see what's going on with, like, Chris Cuomo and... This CNN producer who just got busted for pedophilia. Something where he like he like flew a little girl and her mom out. And there was some something pedophilic, pedophilic, however you say that. Audiophile, he's an audiophile. But you can see where like, you don't really see people making that big of a deal out of that. Not that CNN represents everybody on the left or anything, but that is, you know, one of the major platforms for that way of thinking in the mainstream, but it's like, it's not that everybody approves of those guys. It's not that all Republicans approve of that politician. It's not that all Democrats approve of these CNN employees, but they're willing to kind of give them a pass. They're not going to dwell on it. It, you know, it creates too much dissonance to think about it too much. And, you know, whereas when that the other side is like, I mean, you see the way the right responds to that, where they're like, look at CNN is evil. They have sex offenders and men who are complicit in that kind of behavior working for them. The left is like, look, you have a pedophile of your own. They're willing to focus on the evil on the other side. Because their standards for good and evil don't really connect to the behavior of individuals. It's an idea. It's a tribe. It's a, a set of beliefs. But they both have a sense for it. And right now, people are very superstitious, which is what got me on all this. Like the Mexican guy, the old Mexican guy buying the rose from my friend and, and like being extremely superstitious and being like, I'll buy this from you, but I feel like it's cursed and I just want to know that I want I want to hear you say you believe in God before I buy it. Very superstitious. And, you know, I'm a superstitious person. I have my own little superstitions. I mean, I just a minute ago, an hour ago, I talked about how, like, when I'm sending a text message to somebody and it autocorrects, depending on who it is, I retype the entire word with the correct spelling rather than let autocorrect speak for me. I don't want the AI to speak for me. That's pretty superstitious. 
I have my own little superstitions. But I've noticed it in a lot of people that I see a lot of superstition from people. Whether they know that's what it is or not. Like the guy feeling like the, the rose is cursed. That's a spiritual superstition. And I think you could say that all superstition is kind of spiritual. But not everybody really thinks that it is. Not everybody really knows that it is. And it uh, doesn't really matter, though, what they think. Superstitious behavior is superstitious. And I don't use that as a pejorative because I understand it. It's like my old neighbor. I lived next to these college kids for years. And they watched me. Like they, they, I lived very close to them. So they saw me coming and going. I would go on a lot of walks. They had a bunch of big windows that faced my house. And like one, there was one guy who lived there who would say hi to me and stuff. And I was always friendly with them, but I didn't hang out with them. But there was one guy who lived there who would like, you know, he was very interested in what I was up to. And like one time he came out and he was talking to me and he was like, yeah, he's like, I've noticed like, I don't want to say that you, you seem OCD, but you seem superstitious. And he, he didn't say why he thought that. Cause I mean, he saw me just coming and going, but probably the way I leave the house, you know, like when I would leave the house, I would lock my door and I would always kind of in the same, probably taking the same exact steps every time, but not consciously, I would always like check the door, but it's practical. I just want to make sure it's actually locked. Like, yeah, I might've turned the key to lock it, but it's just what I do. You check, you check the door to make sure it actually locked. That doesn't seem, I guess it's superstitious, but I don't know. He, he, he just must have observed me very closely or something, but I didn't argue. I was like, you know what? Yeah. I thought it was so funny, though, that he, he said that. It was very candid of him to be like, you know, I noticed like you coming and going. And he's like, I don't want to say you're OCD, but maybe superstitious. And I was like, you know what? When you're right, you're right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you're when you're right, you're right, kid. I almost took it as a compliment. But be aware of that. Be aware of people's superstitions. You know, we all have them. You know, some of them are practical. Some of it, Sometimes it is checking a door after you lock it. Sometimes it's because you think something's cursed. Sometimes it's not acknowledging something, even if it's obvious. Because you think something bad might happen. Because all this superstition comes from like the fact that you think something bad might happen if you do that. You might open up a doorway, a gateway to something, even something small. But the idea is that if I don't do it, and if people who actually have OCD, which I don't, but if you've ever seen interviews with them or known somebody who has OCD, like, I remember watching a documentary where a guy with OCD, every time he left the house to go to work in the morning, he would kiss his girlfriend on the cheek, but he would end up doing it over and over again until it felt right. Like, he would kiss her, she would stand in the doorway of their house, and he would kiss her on the cheek, and he would start to walk to his car, and then he would go back and kiss her on the cheek again, and it just, it needed to feel right. 
And for me, like one of my superstitions, and a lot of times it corresponds to doing something a certain number of times. Like there are certain things I do, only a couple things, but I do them either three or nine times. Three or nine. It has to be in threes. And, you know, a six is okay, but it feels unfinished. Like, I'll either do it three or nine. And what's weird is I was talking to my friend Anna about something, or we were talking about something completely unrelated, because I'd never told anybody about that. Maybe I've mentioned it on here, but it's not something I ever mentioned to friends because it sounds kind of weird to bring up. Oh, anyway, you know, I, I touch things three or nine times. Not everything, but just when I'm doing certain things. Three or nine. And she was talking about that, and she was like, she was talking about something completely unrelated and she was like oh yeah you know i have this thing where i need to do things nine times or in threes and i was like really i do the exact same thing something we'd never discussed this is a friend of mine i've known for many years we'd never discussed that but she just volunteered it about something like we were talking about doing something and she was like oh yeah like three or nine times and i was like or she said nine times, but then she mentioned threes. And I was like, that's weird because I do the same thing. But with people who actually have full-on OCD, they'll do things a certain number of times too. And it does kind of come from this feeling that if I don't do that, something bad will happen. If I don't do that, something bad will happen. And that's what OCD people say. If I don't do it that way, or if I do it and it doesn't feel like the right one. Like sometimes when they wash their hands, they'll say like, it has to feel right. And I'll do it until it feels right. And that could be an insane number of times. Like somebody could wash their hands 20 times until it feels right. But they think if they don't do that, it's like it, it offsets the balance or something. It's magical in nature. It's a ritual. And, you know, so that's, that's personal superstition. But it does kind of relate to that idea of a curse. Where it's like, if I don't do this the right way, or in the right order, that's the other one that I have, where it's like, there are certain things where I have to do them in the right order. Like, and it could be just whatever I have to do that night. Like, if I have to pack up mail to send the next day. I'll think like, well, I have to do that first, then I have to take care of the dishes in the sink, and then I have to do the third thing. And I try to do those things in threes too, if you can believe that, but I do. Are you sure you don't have OCD? Are you sure, you mean demonic possession? What they call OCD today is demonic possession. No, I don't think I have OCD though, because I'm not that neurotic about it. And I rebel against myself sometimes, and I break that rule. It's more like a guide, a firm guideline. Same thing with meditation. I try to repeat mantras in threes. I don't always do it, but I try to do them at least each one at least three times. I'm revealing a lot here. Compositionally, I like threes. I re I remember talking to Miles about this years ago where Miles was talking about 
like writing music and now playing something three times. There's something special about it. Like if you play a riff and not everything works out this way, but it's like, if you play a riff three times, it's almost like, you know, compositionally or something or like with momentum, it's like you, it's like you play it once to establish it. And we never talked about this. This is just me going off, but like you play something once to establish it. You play it a second time to confirm it. And then you play it a third time to kind of build to the next part. And compositionally, it works. But not everyone does that. Like someone will be like, you play it four times or you play it eight times. For whatever reason in music, people are very into fours and eights. I like threes. I feel that way about visual art as well, where like if I'm doing a drawing, I like when there's something kind of almost, not a, not an actual triangle, but it's like something feels right if there is kind of a, an element of thirds. And you think about the rule of thirds. The rule of thirds, you know, is that, you know, it plays into all this. And then you look at religion where the Holy Trinity, other examples where things come in threes. So there's something about three. It's not two. There's something about, a tr you think about the pyramids. I mean, I'm, I'm really being silly here, but you think about pyramids. Or like that was an important shape. Something triangular. I think, I don't, I think it all kind of comes from a similar impulse. Like there's something visually appealing about it. There's something that seems symbolic about it. Even if you don't know what it represents, there's sort of something symbolic kind of plays into numerology, it plays into composition. And I, I never like consciously decided that I'm going to be superstitious about doing things in threes. It just feels right. And uh, that's my own thing, but it turns out I'm not alone. But I wonder about the next anti-hero phase. You know, we went through this, you know, because the 80s, you could see the anti-hero gray, gray area in between kind of idea, the not absolute good or evil, but something in between. You saw that idea building in the 80s. You saw that sort of character. Like, I think the original Crow comic book, the movie, there was the movie The Crow, but the comic book that that was based on, I think, was from the 80s, which was sort of a spiritual predecessor to things like Image Comics and Spawn, and there were other examples. So you can see where this kind of anti-hero idea was coming about in the 80s, but it really like became mainstream in the 90s. And then we got kind of sick of it, and we wanted stories about good and evil, good and bad again, superheroes against supervillains. And of course, all, like there, there are plenty of anti-heroes. We have so much stuff that, of course, there are still anti-heroes today. But you can kind of see where it's like part of the zeitgeist. It's the bigger picture. You see these things emerge. And I, you know, I'm curious though to see. Like, I think we will be entering if things, unless things just stay hysterical and insane, I think we'll probably see another anti-hero phase. I think we'll start to appreciate that not everybody's perfect because what goes along with that good and evil idea. Which, you know, you can use that to your advantage. You can use that for the greater good. But you can also be, it becomes this, 
where you're purity testing everything. And you can see that that's how we've treated celebrities and anybody who says the wrong thing. The whole cancel culture thing plays a role where it's like you're impure. It's one thing if somebody did something horrible, like assaulted, sexually assaulted somebody. But we do it even just about little things that people say and we're looking for it. We're looking for an excuse to say you're not good. You said something evil and we're going to treat you that way. We're going to try to excommunicate you. So we've been in that mode where we, we were expecting this impossible purity from people right now. And we've been doing it for years, but it's just been peaking. Where we expect this impossible purity from people that we cannot, it's just not possible as fallen people. For the same reason that we can't expect our parents to be perfect. We expect this absolute purity from people and we are so harsh, so mean when somebody doesn't live up to that impossible standard. But I look forward to another period where maybe the anti-hero idea will emerge. I've always related to it. I've always related to the Dark Knight character. The Racer X from Speed Racer. The Dark Knight from various stories. Where it's like, oh yeah, you know... He looks bad. He seems kind of morally ambiguous. But he seems to be serving a purpose. And he, he seems to be... There seems to be a net positive. He seems to create more than he destroys. That's sort of the idea of the anti-hero to me. And he's not seeking to do it. He's not a do-gooder. But I like that character when it's not just wrapped up in nonstop existential dread and nihilism. Because I think we got, I think one of the reasons why we got so sick of those characters and stories from the 90s and early 2000s is because they just became completely introspective. You know, they became unmotivating. But you can see where, like, when those ideas are fresh again, that they can be very motivating. They can be very inspiring. And they remind us that, you know, you can't hold people to a standard of impossible purity all the time. You can't hold yourself to a standard of purity. And, um... That's about all I got here. I got to go to bed. But, uh, you know, just the way we treat people, though, it's not sustainable. But we need to go through these cycles. Like, we need to have characters where we go, okay, you know, I like this character because he's not perfect. And he's not entirely sure he's good. But he seems to be moving in that direction. You know, and it's one of the reasons I like Buddhism, which I thought I was going to bed. But uh, it's one of the reasons I like Buddhism is because of the middle path, the middle way. Where it's like not asceticism and not indulgence. It's resting somewhere in the balance and not always settling right in the middle. You know, it, it, sort, of, it sort of plays into like, you know, what you read in the Bhagavad Gita where Arjuna 
doesn't want to participate in the war because it's a war between cousins. And there's sort of an understanding that, you know, they both have validity. But as Krishna tells him, it's like sometimes you just have to decide and take a side. Because eventually one of those sides will claim you anyway. You are going to end up on a side no matter what. That's what Krishna tells Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, you know, you're going to end up on a side no matter what if you're indecisive. And it might not be the side you want to be on. And I think that can be motivation to a sort of anti-hero. And I don't know that I would call the, the Gita, the Gita, I don't know that I would call it an anti-hero story. I don't know that Arjuna is an anti-hero. But he's questioning his motivation and he's in a deep state of existential inquiry about himself about his own motivations, about war. He is in a gray area. And that's what I like about, you know, some of that Eastern spirituality and mythology is that it does address this gray area a little more directly than other ideas do, but it's still motivating. It's not the dark side of nihilism. It's not the impotent side of existentialism. And with what's going on currently, speaking for myself, like the state of the world today, I, I do feel like I've taken a side. I don't feel like, like I, I tried to be neutral. I spent some time trying to be neutral. And I still try to be objective, but I think things have reached a point where it's very difficult to exist in a gray area because you will get placed on a side politically. If you're an independent or a moderate or a centrist politically, you will get placed on a side. And if you talk to the wrong person, if you express the wrong idea or give credit to somebody on one side, the other side will say, well, you're with them. I see, I see how it is. And so I think we do live in a time where you do have to take a side because things have been drawn along these lines of good and evil using a variety of words, placeholder words instead of those, but because things are right now drawn down the middle, it's very difficult to navigate. And as a result, like they will place you on a side. If you try to be objective, it doesn't make any difference. So you do kind of have to make a decision right now. I'm not saying you have to be a Republican or a Democrat, but I mean, I, I've taken a side. But I try to still do it with grace. And I still, I, I don't want to make enemies. I don't want to be anybody's enemy. But we're just in a time where that's the case, where you're getting placed there. And so it, it's better to make that decision yourself rather than just continue to be indecisive. And suddenly, oh, somebody else has made that decision for you.
You need to go to therapy. Imagine telling a therapist this. <laughs> Imagine telling a therapist all this. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm going to prescribe. I think you need to have some uh, clonazepam. We're going to give you some anti-anxiety, maybe some anti-psychotics, anti-psychotics. I think I'm going to give you yeah, some anti-anxiety medication. You know, it doesn't sound like you're depressed, but you know, we're gonna give you a, we're gonna give you a, a bunch of stuff. Now, this is what motivates me, though. This is what makes me feel good. This doesn't make me feel worse. This, all this stuff that I'm talking about, it makes me feel better. This is what appeals to me. You know, this is what, like, draws me up out of that abyss. Because that's what any anything that's designed to help you, that's what it should be doing. It should be pulling you up out of the abyss. It should be helping you, not pulling you. It should be giving you some assistance or showing you the staircase, showing you the ladder, showing you the the notches in the rock wall where you can put your hands and your feet to climb up and out. You know, that's what, anything that's designed to help you, that's what it should be doing. It should be just showing you something. It should be showing you how to get up and out of the abyss. Beyond that, I don't know what you can expect. And I know that the therapy industry seems to be framed around something else. And these ideas that I'm interested in, that motivate me, that engage me, and actually do improve my own individual life, they feel very ancient. They seem to come from within. They seem to, not you know, not that I don't take things in, but I just mean, it's like I feel them, it, re, you know, it, it resonates with me on a gut level. It's not what I want to hear. It's not advice that somebody's telling me. But I recommend reading the Bhagavad Gita. I was reading it. I've read I've read sections of it since, but I read it front to back when I was um, when I may have had coronavirus. I still think I had it. I'm still pretty sure I had it in February of 2020. I think I got it at the end of January. I think I got it in a gas station. Because I was going on these long walks and I was using gas station restrooms, not washing my hands. I mean, I washed my hands, but I wasn't using soap. And I, I was just going on these long walks and, you know, nobody was worried about it then. And I got really sick right afterward and it lasted for a long time. And I've had this lung issue ever since. It's gotten a little better. And of course, I'm vaping these days, but... I had some long, not long, I would say, yeah, I've had, you know, I know people have mixed feelings on the whole long COVID thing, but because I think it was probably made in a laboratory, why wouldn't it impact you long-term in some way? I know people are very dismissive about long COVID, long coroni, what we call long coroni, but uh, I certainly had some symptoms that lasted me a long time, and even now I still feel some weird little things you know, like my right lung still feels a little weird. But uh, anyway, the point is, is that I was, it just stayed with me. And I decided once they did the mob mobile testing 
I decided to do the drive-through test and I was reading the Bhagavad Gita at that time. And I remember like sitting in the parking lot, like waiting for the, waiting for them to direct me to one of the tents. And I was reading the Bhagavad Gita and listening to Manila Road. And I was like, this is perfect. The world's gone insane. There's people in hazmat suits who are about to stick a weird thing down my nose to test me for some crazy disease that's ruling our lives now. My mom just died. But I was like, I'm sitting here reading the Bhagavad Gita, getting so much out of it. And I'm listening to Manila Road. That sounds pretty good to me. That's why I, <laughs> that's you know, that's why I don't need therapy. Right there. You know, I don't need to go to the, talk to somebody about coronavi. I, I got the Bhagavad Gita and Manila Road in my hands. And if those don't do something for me, I, I really can't imagine what else would. That's why those things exist. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.